Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like dustbins, pigeons and limes. Or dove, love and of course, the glove, who, who doesn't want to hear about the history of the glove, shove above and on the spur of. You like that little bit at the end? It's on the spur of. We're on We're on the cusp of historical discoveries, Sam. Uh, we will, however, be following the links in our minds as we come across them because I will digress no more, digress no more even, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of laughing... Well, you should do if you'd listen to our last couple of episodes. The history of laughing is, in fact, all about the Reformation, class differences, foreigners, poverty, politeness, awkwardness, the Tudor court, madness, and even breaking wind in front of Queen Elizabeth I. Or that the history of shopping is all about ancient Rome, the development of London, haptic histories, whatever that is. <laughs> It's all about touch, feel, smell... 18th century novels and armadillos. <laughs> and it's very good indeed. Um, the man not sitting opposite me because we are the other side of town, still not brave enough to get near each other. There are cases going up in Exeter, James. I'm terrified of leaving the house. Um, let's. Well, so you should be. <laughs> yeah, so you should be. Uh, let's just say that the that his historical knowledge is, is like a heavily snow-capped mountain. And if you're not careful with it... It can pour forth like an avalanche, starting with a rumble, turning to a shake, <laughs> and then tearing through the valleys of ignorance and the lower plains of illiteracy, burying everything it comes up against with facts, stories and interpretations of the past. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. <laughs> I'm, I'm just overcome by that. So I, feel, I feel swamped by snow. Oh, good. If you can be swamped by snow. I feel like I'm drowning under that avalanche uh, <laughs> of historical knowledge. There. Thank you. That was brilliant. Mm. That was brilliant. Uh, for me, um, the man not sitting opposite me, alas, because we are across town, um, is if, well, let's just say, if he were a mountain of history, he would be the Mount Everest ah. of history. The wonderful historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Towering above Hello, all Sam. others, um, but also deadly, James. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Unpre un climb him and he will kill you. Unpredictable and deadly. Uh, <laughs> yes. And covered in litter, I hear. Oh, yes. Um, good. Uh, we are obviously, if you haven't worked it out yet, I hope you have, doing the history of mountains. It's a fabulous, Ooh. fabulous topic. It certainly um, is. And... Where should we start, James? It is actually tricky because there are so many different ways we can go with this, as usual. Um, but, you know, just to make the general point that, that mountains 
have impacted on our world in innumerable ways. And they're actually very powerful structures in the landscape um, that really have affected our history. But maybe you, you may not suspect it unless you actually stop and think. Yeah, I mean, I've long been fascinated by mountains. I mean, not just sort of views of mountains and the landscape, but also the way in which we think about mountains in history. You know, they are these great uh, impermeable barriers, sort of huge sort of geographical structures and continuities of deep time. So, you know, and and quite difficult to sort of think about as historians about how people interact with them. And of course, we can think about them in all sorts of ways. We can think about climbing mountains and taming mountains and conquering mountains and putting things through mountains. We can also think about the way in which they structure people's lives. You know, people having to pass over mountains, that distances and communication are very different. So life, mountain life, is structurally very different. It's very different from the life that goes on in the towns or the valleys. Uh, and that's something that's quite interesting. I'm also interested in the literary representations of mountains, the meanings that people have found in mountains in in novels or the way in which travel writers, for example, have dealt with mountains. Uh, I think about the work of Robert McFarlane and Mountains of the Mind, which is all about, I mean, part, it's part sort of travel writer, part sort of um, adventure story and people sort of climbing up mountains and exploring. But it's also the conceptualization of mountains in thought for people who have never been to mountains. Mm, it's how they think about them. And that's something that's very, that's very real. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so all sorts of ways um, to think about mountains. Literature or, or, or accounts created in mountains is particularly interesting and people trying to come to terms with their environment. I've always been fascinated by that. I think it's the maritime historian in me um, because yes, it's such a key thing to maritime history, understanding how people um, react with their environment, especially people who've never been, never sort of seen, seen it before. What Some of my favourite accounts are seafarers who... Um, maybe migrating across to America or, or otherwise on a long voyage who have never been on a ship and have never been to sea. And their diaries are just full of reams of the most, you know, like their jaws are literally on the floor. And it's very, very similar with those who've been to mountains for the first time. Do you, do you yes. remember going to the mountains for the first time? I'm assuming you've been to the mountains. I have vertigo, so I try and <laughs> stay away from from mountains. Well, it's not vertigo. It's the it's the other thing. Right. It's a sort of f- irrational fear of heights. It's nothing about dizziness. Um, so, yes, I mean, I, I yes, I went to the Brecon Beacons uh, only a year ago before lockdown hmm. and climbed Penny Fan nice. uh, or sort of I climbed part of it. Yeah. I climbed up the Safeway hmm. um, and my wife and daughters went up the tricky route nice. uh, that I was too cowardly to go up. I've been lucky to go to quite a lot of mountains, um, hmm. whether uh, in Austria quite recently, um, but, all, but sort of more more broadly. Um, to the wonderful mountains in um, Tajikistan, I want to talk about later, and oh, also yes. in Fujian province in China, um, sort of jungly mountains, absolutely wonderful. Um, and wow. I think one of the interesting things is, that is how how mountains make you feel, and if you and how you want to how how you can describe them. But I'd certainly urge people to, if you're interested in this, try and find an account of someone who's never been to the mountains before, who actually sits down and writes and tries and expresses the majesty of what they're seeing. Because it yeah. really is, a, it's a profound, mountains can make you feel a certain way. They they really are, they, are, they have their own agency and they are 
um, they are quite extraordinary. My wife adores going to the mountains, and she finds it very calming and very mm. peaceful. Uh, I'm I'm more happy I'm being by the sea. But actually, going back to the maritime influence, as always, or as always, um, this idea of how mountains make you feel is really interesting. One particular aspect of this is in terms of navigation. So imagine you've been on board a ship for weeks and weeks and weeks, and you're praying you're not going to shipwreck and pile into something. One of the first glimpses of land after a long sea voyage is often, more often than not, is a cloud um, on an otherwise empty horizon because the cloud is, has, has gathered ab- above a mountain. And so in this respect, you have mountains as um, a, a tool of navigation and they become a reason for hope um, and also a, 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 an occasion for congratulation. They become almost a symbol of achievement. You can imagine people um, on, on, on board ship hopping up and down with excitement because they have seen a mountain, because that mountain is going to guide them to safety. Uh, so also yeah. have a think here if you've been to if you've been I don't know I suppose the the most common aspect will be people walking in mountains or maybe if you're lucky enough even going skiing and think about um, that magisterial feeling you get when you're standing up on top of a mountain looking at the world spread out beneath you. Yeah, reaching for a reference tome off my shelves <laughs> as I often <laughs> do. do uh, yesterday evening, I reached for a book called The Living Mountain by Nan Shepherd. I don't know whether you've read it. Um, I was put onto it by having read uh, Robert McFarlane because Nan Shepherd is a travel writer uh, who lived up in Scotland. Uh, I think was an academic as well, um, but somebody who spent her lifetime in the Cairngorm Mountains. And he, she uses the most beautiful phrase. She sort of ru- she explores with her feet. You know, so the book is basically about her experience pre World War Two, walking through these. Cairngorm Mountains and there's a beautiful edition that I got last Christmas uh, introduced by Robert McFarlane and with an afterword by Jeanette Winterson Um, but it's got a foreword uh, by Nan Shepherd and I think I'm just going to read it out because I think it expresses the way in which as historians we can start thinking about mountains. It was 30 years in the life of a mountain is nothing. The flicker of an eyelid. Yet in the thirty years since this book was written, many things have happened to the Cairngorms, some of them spectacular things, things that have won them a place in the press and on the television screens. Avimore erupts and goes on erupting. Bulldozers burst their way into the hill. Roads are made and remade where there were never roads before. Skiers, swift, elate, controlled, Miracles of grace and precision swoop and soar or flounder, but all with exhilaration. Chairlifts swing up and swing down, and a small boy falls from one and is killed. A restaurant hums on the heights, and between it and the summit of Cairngorm grows scruffy, and the very heather tatty from the scrape of boots. Too many boots, too much commotion, but then how much uplift for how many hearts. New shelters are sighted for climbers. A cottage at Muir of Inverry is enlarged and fitted up as a place of resort for Cairngorm club members and members themselves laying the flooring and erecting the bunks. Glenmore houses and trains those ready to learn. Skills are taught and tested. Young soldiers learn the techniques of adventure. Orienteers spread over the land. But the Larig Garou so far is not to be tamed as part of a national way. 
Reindeer are no longer experimental but settlers. The nature conservancy provides safe conduct for bird and beast and plant, but discourages vagabonds of whom I have been shamelessly one. I peer into corners. Ecologists investigate growth patterns and problems of erosion and reseed denuded slopes. The Mountain Rescue Service does its magnificent work. Injured are plucked from ledges by helicopter, the located and exhausted carried to safety. All these are matters that involve man, but behind them is the mountain itself, its substance, its strength, its structure, its weathers. It is fundamental to all that man does to it or on it. If it were not there, he would not have done these things. So thirty years may alter the things he does, but to know it in itself is still basic to his craft. And that is what, thirty years ago, I was striving to do in this manuscript. It was written during the latter years of the Second War and those just after. In that disturbed and uncertain world, it was my secret place of ease. Which is at the most extraordinary forward to a book. Mm. Not only does it, it talk about her own relationship with the Cairngorms, her own sort of finding her own ease, rather like your your wife finding sort of solitude and, and sort of, you know, relaxation in the mountains, comfort in the mountains. This is a place where she goes, where she connects to the land. But also it's about the impact of human beings on the mountain, the experiences that they have, their interactions with the environment and the landscape that affects the way in which they actually live their lives, but also it's about the impact that they have on the mountain, you know, and the sort of environmental destruction and change that can be wrought on the landscape by individuals' interactions with it. Yeah. It's a beautiful, beautiful opening. I it think. is. It makes me want to read it. I love things like that. You suddenly go, well, I can sit down with a cup of tea, really spend a bit of time. I'll buy you a copy for Christmas, oh, thank Sam. Thank you very much, I'm Looking forward to it. Um, Excellent. I... Um, We've just talked briefly there about people visiting mountains. So by implication, you've got people who don't live in mountains who are going to visit it for the first time, which raises the important question of people who do live in mountains, mountain dwellers. And there's a big historical problem here if you go back into the past, which is to do with the the paucity of record keeping in the mountains and widespread illiteracy in the mountains. So it's very difficult as a historian to actually get to grips with these people who live in isolation and live in isolated valleys, because we actually know almost nothing um, about nothing from their own hands about from the mountain dwellers themselves. Almost everything we know about mountain dwellers comes from the perspective of literate people, elite people who live in completely different societies. They live in towns, they live in plains, they live in cities. These are the the lands of bureaucrats and archives, very different from the rural conditions in which those mountain people are living. And what this leads to is is a frequent characterization of these mountain people as either clowns or criminals the 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 19th century french writer stendhal hey it's Paige desorbo from giggly squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to quince i'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with quince being 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Uh, he lived between 1783 and 1842, describes peasants from the Sabine Hills outside Rome venturing down into the lowlands on Ascension Day. It's a wonderful example of this. They came down from their mountains to celebrate the feast day at St Peter's. They wear ragged cloth cloaks, their legs wrapped in strips of material held in place with string cross-gartered. Their wild eyes peer from behind disordered black hair, they hold to their chest hats made of felt, which the sun and rain have left a reddish-black colour. These peasants are accompanied by their families of equally wild aspect. A wonderful little description, but certainly there's the, the warning here that what you're, you're, you're reading is, is from the hand of, of people who live a completely different life and will necessarily be biased. Yeah, I think that's... I think that's a brilliant way of thinking about the barriers between the mountains and other parts of the of of the country. Um and I think this is probably best expressed in a wonderful little essay uh by uh Fernand Brodel, the brilliant French uh sociocultural historian in his uh magisterial study called The Mediterranean World in the Age of uh, Philip II, which was published just after the Second World War, Brodel is one of those sort of is one of those really great historians uh, that the world has produced. Uh, he lived most of the twentieth century. He was born in nineteen o two, lived through to nineteen eighty five. Those of you who are taking my what is history uh, module at the University of Plymouth uh, this term will know all about Fernand Brodel uh, next week. Uh, he wrote a brilliant little piece called Mountain Freedom. Uh, and what he's doing is in this book uh, about the Mediterranean, he's looking at the geography of the landscape. He's looking at the geography of the sea, which you're fascinated in, Sam. But it's it's a landlocked sea. Um, and he looks also at the mountain ranges of the Pyrenees and the Alps on it. And he's argue, he's looking at how these are very different from what went on in the towns and down in the valleys. He's interested in looking at the socio-political structures that basically controlled the plains and the towns with their tentacles of government and bureaucracy, uh, which make law and trade and everything much easier to sort of permeate into those, rather than the lofty heights of the mountains 
with their remote settlements, their treacherous roads and passes, many of which were largely impassable during the snow-laden winter months. So, for example, feudalism, which is a system of organisation, of land ownership that operates uh, in these sort of lowland and areas, it doesn't permeate up into the towns. There's, it's, sorry, up into the mountains. There's also no embedded nobility, so there's no aristocracy. There's no well-fed clergy that we see down controlling things on the plains and in the towns. The powers of the state to enforce things through police or gendarmes or paramilitary police officers doesn't really extend into the town, up into the mountains. Um, and so the mountains themselves are sparsely populated. They're places with high altitude uh, and inhabitants were able to defy authority in a way that they wouldn't down in the towns. Hence the idea of this mountain freedom. Uh, and it's also somewhere that is seen as traditional. In some ways it's seen as backward, but also local customs are very strong in each of the little villages or cantons, which acquire their own particular way of being ruled, generally through the village areas. But ideas, feudal concepts of justice uh, don't penetrate the, these areas at all. Um, and if you think about um, areas like Sardinia, Corsica, Albania, there's a culture of vendetta and outlaws that we see running through these, these, these sort of hilltop mountainous areas and something that continues to the present day. So in Corsica, the main haunts of bandits were between Tor and Mount Santo, Santo Apiano in the wilderness regions. Uh, and one of the most famous Corsican bandits uh, from this period was Capricinta of Prunelli, uh, whose father was condemned to the valleys in the early 19th century, which led to his son uh, and some of his relations to head into hiding up into the hills where they could escape justice and launch attacks to avenge their relative. They descended then from the mountains as bandits to kill personal enemies, spies, soldiers, and on one occasion even captured the public executioner himself and executed him. Now, in 1820, uh, Capricinta was also reputed to have headed into the region three times from his mountain hideaway to attempt to kill his mother-in-law, would you believe, uh, because she had denounced him to the troops. Now, one of the main arguments that uh, Brodel is making here, then, is the geographical barrier of the mountain. He's also really interested in how we fit geography and its unchanging nature into a model of history. So how do we account for something that doesn't change in a study that is basically concerned with change? And I'm sure we've talked about this in the past, but the the French historians called the Annals School come up with different ways of modelling historical time. And they have a sort of very immediate time called the history of events, which is basically the sort of the wars, the laws and all of those kinds of things that happen on a sort of rapid daily basis. Then you have a medium 
period, the medium durée, which is about you know, 40 to 60 years. And you're looking there at things like economic change and cycles and, and, and demographic patterns. And then you've got what they call the long durée, the long term. And into this, you put things like geography and climate. And this is where mountains would sit. Mm. And the key when you're looking at a particular period in history or you're looking at a particular historical question is how you interlay these three layers of interlocking time. So how does a mountain like the Pyrenees impact with economic cycles and how does it impact with with wars and the history of daily events? Do things remain unchanged? How do you actually you know, shift and change mountains over time. Mm. So there we are. I, I uh, love deep, deep history. Yeah, yeah, I love the idea of there being no feudalism in the mountains. That's mm. really interesting, isn't it? When when you're writing about feudalism, I think kids out there, something you'll definitely cover at school. But the it's it's really important to bear in mind that it wasn't everywhere. One and mountains is new to me. I didn't realise it wasn't there, but of course it's so obvious once you say so because. Uh, it, it just doesn't doesn't work in that kind of situation. But one of the other places where there was no feudalism was Venice, because there's no land. It's really, really interesting. And actually, the way that the Venetians organised organized their society was completely different. Uh, and it really put to the fore those who had a natural ability to trade and who understood economics. Um, so there are two examples as why Venetians are, are like mountain dwellers. Who knew? What a, what a, what a wonderful discovery we've made, James. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, James, I was looking at, at our variety of books we've written, particularly our series books, to see how we might have come across mountains in those. And uh, I quickly came across our chapter on puppets in the World War II, the histories of the unexpected, the Second World War. And there's some wonderful aspects here. And it was, it was something that I really enjoyed discovering when we were researching the book. And this is all to do with Greek mountain fighters and their use of theatre to help bond together resistance fighters, to help spread the word of resistance against, against the Germans. A bit of background. October 1940, Italy declares war on Greece, but they've soon forced into a terrible stalemate. There's a great deal of fighting. Um, but that is broken dramatically in April 1941 when the Germans attack and they swiftly occupy the country. Now, it's also worth bearing in mind here that Greek has a long tradition of resistance fighters, going back to the fall of Constantinople in 1453. So um, centuries of resistance fighters, people fighting against those who have invaded their country, um, originally when the country came under Ottoman control. And now in the 1940s, you've got German occupation and you've got these Greeks living in the mountains who swiftly achieve a status of, of a folk hero. Um, and this, the mountain-dwelling resistant fighters are revered, they're celebrated, and the stories of them have, have come down to us um, through history. Absolutely fascinating things to try and get your teeth into as a historian. And what is important about this as well, just to bear in mind, um, is that the opposition to German occupation was not only immediate, but it was also fractured. So you haven't just got one body of resistance fighters. In fact, you've got three um, well, more than three, but the, but primarily you've got three very, very distinct groups, the ELAS, the EDES and the EKKA. And so you haven't got people um, being able to unite, perhaps because of the 
geography in which they are actually operating. I'm sure that would have had a part in it as well as, as political differences. But what this actually means is that this subsequent rivalry after the war before between these three resistant groups actually leads to the Greek Civil War, a very bloody conflict between 46 and 1949. The point I wanted to make here is how they used theatre to engage mountain peasants in mountain villages. What you've got to do is bring quite polit sophisticated political ideas to people who uh, have little exposure to the news or to opinion concerning contemporary events. Um, but they do have a particular affinity with traditional oral folk culture. Again, this comes back to the mountains being wild areas with poor education, low literacy. Um, and so written manifestos just don't work, essentially. And the solution was to put on plays. Um, and the, the, the first ones who did this were, when, when they weren't professional performers. They were the mountain fighters of the Greek resistance who become, who, who become players. They, they, they learn the art of puppetry to, to speak of their deeds, to cultivate allies in the remote areas, to try and, and gain unity. And this then changes, which is fascinating. So it starts off with these poorly trained mountain fighters doing the shows um, to then later on, once the war is fully in, in sway, you've got groups of professional performers seeking um, safety in the mountains as well. And what they do is they take up the message which has been established by the mountain fighters, uh, performing uh, for villages in return for food. Um, uh, and it was performed uh, for children for free, which I think was um, it's an important point to make there. And so not only are they entertaining, they're teaching about resistance, they're teaching about liberty with songs and shows, but they're instructing the young how to become puppeteers themselves. So it, 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 the tradition of puppetry in the theatre then grows um, and it continues long after the war. So they are absolutely fascinating, a little aspect of Greek resistance and puppetry theatre in the Second World War. I love that. I, and I think it I think it adds to our the argument that we're making here about the the impact that mountains have on history. And they occupy a very special place in the deep history of the world. And I think one of the things that's fascinating is the slowness with which mountains change and the way in which they are part of those sort of part of those deep structures of the past um, that are have long standing and imperceptible changing structures and the way in which they change the relationships of those who interact with them. And I just want to leave us with a little quote from Brodel, uh, which I was going to read earlier, but I think it's beautiful. Um, uh, he's describing here mountain freedom and, and vendetta. In Sardinia and Calabria and everywhere where observation, when it is possible, reveals a hiatus between the society and the broad movements of history. If social archaisms, the vendetta amongst others, persisted, it was above all for the simple reason that mountains are mountains. That is primarily an obstacle and therefore also a refuge, a land for the free. For there men can live out of the reach of the pressures and tyrannies of civilization, its social and political order, its monetary economy. So I think then that you've got it that there's this sort of, there is this great majesty about them, but there is also this great sort of sense of freedom that you can get on and live your own life on them. 
Wow. How about that for an avalanche of historical knowledge, James? I know. I I think it's terrific. I'm quite inspired by this. Uh, Thank you very much for listening, guys. We're going to come back with some more mountain stuff for you if you've enjoyed it. I certainly have. I've got many more stories to tell you and to share. Um, Do please, as ever, review us on iTunes. Help us rise up the charts on the podcasting charts. It really, really helps. It helps drive listener numbers, and it's much appreciated if you could do that. I'll tell you what, we'll read out reviews if you can leave a fab review for us. In fact, I'll read out any review. I don't mind at all. Um, Please follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And I'm on at James Daybell, but I will not be reading out bad reviews. (laughs) (laughs) And the pod is on at Unexpected Pod. Please check out uh, what we've got online, historiesoftheunexpected.com. And if you do really like us, please um, help contribute. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash historiesoftheunexpected. Any money you can pledge can go towards editing costs, which are very high, and also... Uh, recording equipment and we'd really appreciate your help thank you very very much indeed that's it we'll be back with more on mountain soon bye bye guys even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.